listening Two topics we have uh, today for you are um, the 75th anniversary of Inrush. So that's something that we shall get into at 7.30 a.m. And um, starting uh, at about 8.15 a.m., we shall talk about um, racism in sport. And um, uh, sport and racism has been in the news, football and racism, cricket and racism. So we shall go um, a little bit into detail on that. Uh, this is a live show, so please do call in uh, at 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Please do participate in both of these discussions. Assalamu alaikum. A very warm welcome uh, to the breakfast show on this beautiful, uh, yeah, almost uh, sunny morning. Sunny uh, sun is trying to come out. Uh, Imam Usman Manan, how are you doing? Thank you very much. I'm good, alhamdulillah. By the grace of Allah, and uh, yes, it's really a really nice day. Um, and nowadays, the sun comes out so early. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. In the winter, it's still so dark and dull. So. Yes, and uh, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, we've, so we've had uh, summer solstice uh, uh, only uh, about two, about three weeks ago, I'd say. Mm. So yeah, unfortunately, it's uh, it is going to be downhill uh, <laughs> from <laughs> here on in. But before that, uh, I think yeah, we shouldn't be that gloomy. I mean, yeah, we we have a summer to enjoy, and then. Uh, there'll be a nice autumn as well. So, yeah, winter mm-hmm. is uh, is is far, far away. Yeah, right. I just started. <laughs> yeah, correct. Okay, right. Um, starting with the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. So Monday's front pages are dominated by the news that an unnamed BBC presenter has been suspended from the BBC. The Daily Express says the BBC star has been accused of paying a young person £35,000 for explicit pictures. The corporation is in turmoil says the paper, adding that police have been told about the allegations. The Telegraph says the controversy over the alleged uh, star sex sta- scan- uh, scandal threatening to engulf the BBC is what prompted senior executives at the corporation to contact the Met Police. The BBC's internal investigation teams will meet Scotland Yard detectives for help with the case on Monday, the paper notes. It also features a picture of actor Brad Pitt, who was filming at the British 
Grand Prix at Silverstone on Sunday. The Sun has revealed new allegations about the BBC presenter accused of paying someone for explicit images. In a new story, the paper claims the presenter made what it calls two panicked calls to the young person after the Sun's report came out. The presenter allegedly asked the young person, what have you done, and asked them to ring their mother to get her to stop the investigation, the paper reports. Beeb's brief Crisis declares the Metro as it reports MPs have claimed that the BBC's Director General was too slow. The paper also features a picture of England's cricketers celebrating as they kept their ashes hope alive by beating Australia on Sunday. Director General Tim Davey has confirmed the BBC first received a complaint about the unnamed presenter in May, prior to new information emerging this week, reports the Eye. The paper says big names at the BBC have taken to social media to deny being the individual involved. BBC calls in cops, declares the Daily Mirror. The paper says Mr. Davey defended the corporation, saying the presenter was dropped after new new allegations came to light. Labour MP Rachel Reeve says the BBC needs to get a grip as it seems to lurch from one scandal to another, notes the paper. Culture Secretary Lucy Fraser held urgent talks with the BBC's Director General on Sunday about the allegations being faced by a presenter. Says the Daily Mail, the paper also features a picture of Nuria Sajjad, who is the second girl to die from her injuries after her car crashed into a school in southwest London on Thursday. The BBC suspended the unnamed presenter nearly two months after a complaint was first made by the young person's family, reports The Times. The paper says the family first complained on 19th May, but saw that the presenter was still on air in June. The new allegations have forced the BBC um, to raise the game, says the Daily Star. The paper says the corporation has faced criticism over why the suspension of the presenter actually took so long. The Guardian leads with an exclusive story that reveals more than 50 MPs have owned stakes in publicly listed companies that raised questions about possible conflicts of interest. The paper also says that until now, these stakes have been in effect secret. Dozens of MPs have shares in banks, house builders, defense companies and supermarkets, the paper notes. Meanwhile, Germany and the U.S. are under pressure from other allies to show greater support for Ukraine's eventual membership of NATO, reports the Financial Times. The, this comes just a few days before NATO leaders meet in Lithuania. Members of the alliance were caught off guard by the conservative U.S. and German stance, officials told the paper. So those were the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. We shall now take a very quick break, and we, when we come back, we will continue with uh, the news uh, items and important um, uh, important news appearing in the newspapers this morning. Please do stay tuned.
Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. My peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Monday, the 10th of July, 2023, the time 7:10 a.m. And you're listening to Dani Alza and Imam Usman Manan live from the South London studios of Voice of Islam. We are still talking about the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. We just went through the um, the important key stories in the newspapers um, as of this morning. Just a reminder of the two topics that we shall discuss today. So the first is about Windrush and the 75th, 75th anniversary of Windrush. So we shall talk about what Windrush is, um, uh, what caused it, um, and then the issues that they, um, the Afro-Caribbean um, elders had here when they actually came to this country and go into a little bit of detail about some of the challenges that they have been facing over the years as well. Uh, so that will start at 7.30 and then from 8.15 a.m. onwards we'll talk about sport and racism and um, uh, talk about football and racism, cricket and racism and in and, and general. And, and we have a back show. We have uh, a lot of guests uh, lined up uh, to contribute to this show. Please also uh, don't forget to call in. This is a live show, so you can call in at 020 8687 7878. Right, Imam uh, Usman Manan, anything that caught your eye this morning? Uh, yes, so there has been a, a attack in Palestine in the Jenin area, and the European envoy denounced Israel over the proportionality of the force it was used in, the, in this international envoy's um, tore the Jenin refugee camp in the occupied West Bank following a deadly raid. Uh, and uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has re- uh, repeatedly referred to the refugee camp as a terrorist nest uh, because of the presence of Palestinian armed fighters. Um, a little bit about the history of this camp. <clears throat> um, so the history illustrated um uh of this Jenin camp is uh such that at least 7500 Palestinians were forced from their homes when the state of Israel was established in 1948 and some refugees settled in what is known uh today as the Jenin refugee camp uh, or just the Jenin camp in the occupied West Bank this spot has historical importance for Palestinian nationalism nearby was the stronghold of the first organized Palestinian resistance against the British rule, uh, which was led by Izzardin al-Qasim. The original camp was destroyed by a violent snowstorm, but then it was rebuilt again in 1953. And during the first intifada between 1987 and 1993, Israeli soldiers regularly raided the Jenin camp in search of armed Palestinians. More than 400 houses were destroyed and hundreds were severely damaged. More than a quarter of the camp's population was displaced. Uh, The resistance fighters have been arming themselves to protect the camp and its residents, uh, whereas Israel believes that they're arming themselves to fight back and uh, attack Israel. But Israel says the Jenin camp is not a place of resistance, but a hub for armed men bent on doing harm to Israelis. And in 2022, Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akla 
was shot by an Israeli military sniper in Jenin while reporting on an Israeli raid. And just recently, um, a few days ago, in July, Israel launched its largest assault on the occupied West Bank in decades, while Palestinians in Jenin camp are unclear about their future. Israel seems to be more certain. Right, thank you uh, for that. Um, in another news um, carried by The Guardian this morning, um, Russia and um, uh, and, and Ukraine, relating to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So Biden and uh, Sunak are expected to discuss Ukraine's NATO bid as uh, Kyiv claims advance in Bakhmut. So this is something which is uh, carried by The Guardian this morning um, and Joe Biden's meeting in Downing Street on Monday with uh, Rishi Sunak. That is today their fifth in the past five months and the sixth since Sunak became prime minister probably carries more significance than any other, according to Patrick Winter of The Guardian newspaper. The two men are not just uh, 37 years apart in age, according to The Guardian, but increasingly a long way apart on how to handle Ukraine. The disagreements will be kept from the public eye, and the hope is that the meeting can narrow the differences. The U.S. disapproves if the junior partner goes public on any disagreement or is perceived to be trying to bounce Washington into action. Um, uh, Pushing, as some say, was the undoing of the NATO Secretary Generalship ambitions of Ben Wallace, the UK Defence Secretary, after he tried to force the pace on arms supplies. Similarly, the watchword of NATO built on consensus is actually unity. Uh, but the Guardian writer continues, uh, it is self-evident that the two countries lean towards different positions of the war in Ukraine and its aftermath. At issue are the conditions set for the path for Ukraine's future membership of NATO and the security guarantees that Zelensky should be provided by an ad hoc alliance of states in the interim. And behind that lie questions about escalation in NATO's future relationship with Russia. At one extreme lies a nervous Germany and at the other uh, impatient Baltic states and Poland. Expected, um, uh, uh, there are talks expected um, in this particular uh, conference on this issue. And uh, according to this news, Sunak uh, needs all his persuasive powers to sway Biden on Ukraine's NATO membership. So, uh, yeah, this is uh, something which uh, uh, which has been talked about for a few years now, actually. And uh, dare I say, it was probably one of the major reasons of Russian offense um, and Russian offensive in, in Ukraine and uh, it will it will only exacerbate the conflict. I don't think this is leading to any towards any peaceful settlement of the conflict or a negotiated settlement of the conflict, which is what we need right now because there appears to be a stalemate um, uh, on the um, on the Russia Ukraine border at the moment, uh, and you keep on hearing of skirmishes, but uh, the only path to peace really is negotiations and this is not going to set a good um, a good environment for those negotiations uh, um, we need to to de-escalate the situation and by pressing ahead uh, for um, Ukraine's membership of NATO unfortunately uh, things are only going to get worse and um, this conflict will only get exacerbated that's something that is a red line for Russia, which Russia has been has been talking about that for such a long time. And as I said earlier, this was uh, one of the major reasons why Russia actually went to uh, to war in Ukraine in the first place. So I hope uh, 
that better sense does prevail here when it comes to this conflict. Right, with those words, um, we shall now take a quick break. And when we come back, we will talk about some of the things that have been happening in our community over the last one week. Do stay tuned. Listening Hazrat Yusuf, on whom be peace, mentions God's favors by virtue of his attribute of Al-Latif, the benignant, by recalling how God was his friend, while his brothers conspired against him. According to the lexicon, Latif is a kind of gracious being, one who is benevolent to his creation, as well as one who is aware of all subtle and incomprehensible matters. Al-Latif is one who illuminates hearts, who makes arrangements for physical and spiritual nourishment, and who offers his friendship to his servants during times of tribulation. The promised Messiah on whom be peace said that sight, intellect, and consciousness cannot reach God. It is impossible to try and see him. He is Al-Latif, he is unseen and illuminates the person he reaches to such an extent that the person speaks for him, a divine honor mostly granted upon the prophets of God. God is the knower of all subtleties and is all aware. He is of those who seek him and raises prophets to be their guide to him. His light is manifested through His Prophets as they spread the light of unity of God all around them. Among all the Prophets of God, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon Him, disseminated this light the most. For it was He who had the most perfect perception of God, and it was He who was completely imbued in the colors of God. In the current age, because of his perfect and complete devotion 
and subservience to the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. God has granted this distinct honor to the promised Messiah on whom be peace. It is the attribute of Al-Latif that makes God the friend of his servants in all trials and tribulations. Just as the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him continuously prayed for the reformation of his Ummah as well as his opponents as only Al-Latif can be the guidance and reformation. Al-Latif is the supporter of the victim, the voice of the oppressed. Al-Latif is that companion whose loyalty never fails to astound. It is he who fills hearts with his magnificent light. Then should we not be grateful for the mercy of Al-Latif? Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. The topics that we have for you this morning are the 75th anniversary of Windrush, which we shall start in about six minutes' time. And then from 8.15 a.m. onwards, we shall talk about sport and racism. Uh, this is a live show, so please do call in at 020-868-77878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam. However, for the next five minutes or so, we are talking about um, uh, some events that um, actually um, have been happening in the in the community. But uh, more importantly, the one big event that actually is about to happen within our community, and that's something which is a much looked forward to event. It's the annual convention or the Jalsa Salana of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community here in the UK. And that's going to be held from the 29th, um, uh, on, on the 28th, 29th and 30th of this month um, in a farm in Alton. Uh, so let's maybe spend a couple of minutes uh, talking about that, Imam Usman Manan, and let's maybe paint a picture for somebody who's not aware of uh, of this event. Um, so this is a this is an event. This is the largest uh, Muslim gathering of its kind in the country. Um, about forty thousand people converge, or um, are expected to converge. Actually, more than that uh, this year. I think um, this year they're planning for fifty thousand. Correct. Because it's happening on a full scale after the COVID break. Um, 
and uh, we're expecting like many many people to come uh, because it's been happening um, it's happening after a few years on a full scale people internationally can come uh, so this convention also for the listeners is the international jalsa yeah which is for the whole world uh, each country has their own jalsa wherever they they have enough uh, md um to md's to do the jalsa yeah. for example germany is uh, probably the second biggest is the big one yeah absolutely yeah and then um, so this is the international one so usually more people are expected to come here um and it is international because uh because uk is blessed with the presence of his holiness hazrat yes. mirza masood ahmed the the current head of the ahmed muslim community he's the current caliph and the current head and he's the magnet which actually uh, pulls the entire community towards yeah, no him and towards this uh, towards the jalsa so it's all because of him the, that everybody wants to participate in this jalsa as, as but otherwise as you said you know every country has their conventions the jalsas uh, and they have them uh, on a regular basis but this one is really special because uh because his holiness is here and uh, he's the magnet and and uh, you know such a uh, such a blessing for the uk community really to be able to uh to have him here and host uh this event on on such a large scale but just to yeah. sort of paint a little bit of a picture again for our <coughs> listeners you know this is uh this is a convention which uh, which takes place as i mentioned on a farm in alton in hampshire in beautiful can- countryside of hampshire and the council only allows 28 days for um uh, for the marquis and literally a whole mini city to be built and yeah. uh and unbuilt and demolished uh within a period of 20 28 days uh, and as you can imagine it's a herculean task uh to do all of that to house um or or to take care of uh three meals a day for for more than 40,000 people close to 50,000 people uh, as you said being arranged for for this year and uh for them to come um as a lot of them actually stay on the site mm. uh for them to listen to all the speeches for 3 days uh it's really a mini city and it's it's a sight to see uh if anybody has not and and it's it's um it's an open event for any uh anyone who is interested uh, it it's not restricted to muslims or to ahmadi muslims uh, you know anyone and everyone is really invited uh and very welcome to come and attend the event to uh, to see for themselves uh what a what an amazing piece of organization this particular event is um there are more than 5000 volunteers uh, you know take part in um, in setting up this mini city as i said yeah it's amazing uh, something about the purpose of this um the founder of the hamdiya muslim community as mirza ghulam ahmed the um, the promised messiah peace be upon him he stated he stated that the key purpose of this convention of this annual gathering is to enable very sincere individuals to personally experience religious benefit to broaden their knowledge and to deepen their understanding of allah the almighty by the grace and opportunity given by him and this is one of the needs of this convention that strate- that strategies for the spiritual well-being of Europe and America should be put forward for this is now a pro- proven fact that good-natured and sincere people from Europe and America are preparing to enter the fold of Islam so this is a convention 
is has uh, a huge purpose of this is to call people together to kind of uh, you know uh, improve that brotherhood and uh, your own spiritual state for the for the Muslims as well uh, and uh, for the guests which which attend and which uh, uh, we call also. Right. Thank you very much. And with that, we shall move directly into the first topic of this morning, which is the 75th anniversary of Windrush. So 22nd June 2023 actually was precisely the 75th anniversary of the arrival of the first passengers of the Empire Windrush in the UK. That day, that day celebrates the contribution and achievements of the Windrush generation and their descendants. So those Caribbeans that traveled to England by ship post-war for the um, labor requirements of Britain are known as the Windrush community. The ship after which the community is named was SS Empire Windrush. It sailed with one of the first groups or groups of West Indians on this date, um, that is 22nd June 1948. Many served with the armed forces in the Second World War. Um, uh, Post-World War in industries, reconstruction and nurses as a start, beginning of the NHS. Um, youngest was a five-month-old baby and, and, and there were many, many children under 12 as well. Let's go now straight to our first guest uh, for this show, who is Mrs. Lee Tomside, um, who is from the uh, who's the chairperson of Afro-Caribbean Elders Association. Assalamu alaikum. Peace with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Tomside, for joining us this morning. So tell us a little bit about um, uh, what is the significance of the Windrush generation for the Afro-Caribbean community in the UK? I think the significance of the people coming from the Empire Windrush has contributed to the post-war de- devastation that was caused where Britain was really in a terrible state of manpower to build the country up. So the government's decision to actually invite the people to create the labor force that needed. So this was the British government's idea of inviting them as they came from a British colony. So that was the idea behind the whole thing, to try and build the destruction and the whole fabric of this UK or United Kingdom that had experienced post-war. So that was the reason that the people came along. Right. But I think they they helped build the place up from nothing. So let, let's talk about that. So how did the this generation actually contribute towards healthcare, transportation, education, other areas? Well, amongst the people, perhaps... Uh, 25% of them were educated, qualified people who came to give the services with good intention. Lots of family and other people who came along were laborers. They learned, they were prepared to do anything, any job that was available. They didn't come to just 
stay here and do nothing. So they came to create the labor force, to provide the transport with drivers and the post office, the hospital set up, the hospitality industry. So I think uh, that is how they contributed and that was the reason for embarking on this journey. Thank you, Ms. Lee. Um, what are some of the, some of the challenges uh, this generation faced? Uh, if you can give some examples. I don't think at the time the government prepared the people of the country as to what kind of people are coming through. They didn't realize they were black mm-hmm. because previously when other people came from the Israel, the, the whole Jewish population, the Polish, the Bulgarians, and everybody else who were able to fit in without any difference. So I think the mass of black faces shocked the people of this country Mm -hmm. so much so that they thought they were aliens and they shouldn't be, you know, treated like human beings. So they had a very difficult time. Was that one of the first black communities which which came to Britain? Is yeah. that why the why the? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, do you think um, you mentioned that a lot of these people uh, who came the you know the first generation ones were educated people and they you know they came here to to contribute towards education and towards uh, many other areas of the economy here as well, which is battered by the war. Um, what happened over the years? Many people then um, sort of felt that they were left behind um, within the country uh, as a community. What went wrong? Well, I think the others that followed were lots of other extended families who felt that, you know, they have had family here and the opportunities are available for them to find a job and change their whole lifestyle from what they are experiencing. So after that, lots of people came on the grounds of wanting to be part of the family to find a job. So, yes. So what was the condition um, in the Caribbeans? Um, Was it difficult, the the life? um, Did people want to leave? Did people want to come to Britain? Or that was... um, it wasn't it was a necessity you would say yes i think i mean there have been people who came for economic reasons that they what they were doing in their own country uh was not actually giving them the kind of life that they might be able to have for themselves if they came across because of the family links they've had and i think uh, over the years when people were able to send funds to their own family and educate their children that they left behind or other extended family support that they gave. I think this created an incentive for the majority that, well, you know, it is possible for me to perhaps improve myself and let me come along and do something. So there was that period of time as well that a lot of other family members came along through the family links. But on the whole, as it was this uh, invite to the original people, it was an open door system that, you know, 
they didn't realize that uh, it was going to close down on them. Right. And and the the people who followed, you're saying that then they didn't really invest in the in themselves in terms of education and uh, and progress. And they focused more uh, about supporting their families back home. Is that why they, they were sort of left behind? So uh, you mentioned that the uh, the people who followed the first generation um, were the people who um, who came here and perhaps weren't as um, uh, as qualified as the as the first generation. Did that get that right? Well, some of them, yes. Some of them, I think, came to further their education and they managed to improve themselves and their status and. Uh, but the problem was that uh, they were not making the kind of progress they expected to have because mm-hmm. of, you know, the segregation and demarcation that creates with the color of your skin. Mm, of course. Uh, can you say some personal stories or experiences of the Windrush Generation members in your community? Well, what any personal stories or experiences oh, that yeah, you may have, you may have heard of? Yeah, yeah, there are personal stories. Yes, well, I could be one of them. That I could say that I came from South Africa. I was here. I was in the nursing field, uh, finding opportunities to make progress into a higher position was a great challenge, mm. but. Uh, you, if you persevere and you've got the experience and qualification, it is possible for you to climb the ladder. But it is a very slim chance that you can be provided with. The other person's story, I would say that when I was ready to get married, I was engaged uh, to a black man. Obviously, finding accommodation wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you phone and look for accommodation, yes, it is available. But the minute you go there, the window curtains open and they see you with a black man and they don't want the black man around. Mm-hmm. So they, cause the accommodation is taken. They tell you. Mm-hmm. Then again, you go back and somebody phones to inquire on it. It's still available. Yes, these these things happen. Personal stories of difficulties, accepting and um, even to get a mortgage to buy a place as a woman, you couldn't even get that happen in the early years. It was tough. Hmm. I can I can uh, only imagine absolutely. So, uh, when did you personally arrive uh, in the country from South Africa? I came here in 1967 in the March. Right. And and so the Windrush generation really started in, in 1940. And so 20 years later, you're saying that, uh, that there was still a lot of challenges and uh, you couldn't get a mortgage, you couldn't get uh, even a house to rent. Um, what about uh, opportunities for education here? Oh, yeah. Education is well. Well, if you wanted to persevere with the education, yes, it is possible. But there are lots of families who, if they are single parent families, and they've got so many other commitments, and it's very difficult. Lots of families find that they cannot educate all the children as much as education in those early years were free. But lots of children 
have lost the impetus to want to do any further studies and just not be interested. And I think the fabric on the whole to support them wasn't there. So a lot of our children lost out. And I think if I give you an example, that lots of black children were put into a state of education where they were educationally subnormal and put in an underclass. As far as their development was concerned, there was no interest in to give them a challenge. So really, lots of black children on the whole lost out on the education platform. Mm-hmm. There has been a lot done to tackle racism. We've come far from, from uh, you know, from the beginning. What what do you feel like is is the state today? Um, has has uh, there been improvement? Well, I think uh, the government policy changing for people who were here for many years uh, when Theresa May made that statement. I think it didn't help. Lots of older generation people who actually thought they had the free stay and not even renew their passports and all. So I think they were affected quite badly when they went back to their own country for a holiday or to stay for a while and then they wanted to come back and they didn't have their passports. So they were not entitled to return as comfortably because they couldn't even produce the documents. So, yeah, this this affected a lot of the older generation who lost out in spite of them providing all the manpower, the services, all their lives, and when they retired, because they were not having the valid documents, uh, were not even entitled to the state funds that they should be having their pensions and the NHS service give them health care. So I think lots of families suffered a great deal because they even lost out on housing and the family support that they needed. So there was, this created a lot more. And this is the only time I think they have been come to the forefront legacy that they created having been here post-war that suddenly they were expected to actually produce documents and lots of them lost it and they are having a struggle to justify their working Mm. life experience that they spent all the years here so some of them Mm. are suffering a great deal and some have had some success but I think uh, the government is trying to create some kind of help for them. But hmm. How long it be before the majority who actually are affected is going, are going to actually be given the liberty to say they are British and they are entitled to everything that they need to. Of course. Right. Uh, one hopes that the uh, situation does improve for for those as well who've uh, who's still struggling, as you said. Uh, Mrs. Lee Tomside, thank you so very much for joining us. This was uh, very enlightening. Uh, you've certainly made us wiser today. Thank you very much for um, accepting the invite and thank you very much for joining the show this morning. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you very much. So that was Ms. Lee.
Tom Said, who is the chairperson of Afro-Caribbean Elders Association. Let me go straight to our second guest uh, for this morning, who is Christopher Barrett, uh, who is a team leader of the Windrush Generation Legacy Association. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Greetings, greetings. Inshallah, my brother. Greetings, greetings. Thank you very much, Mr. Barrett. Thank you man. It's an honor. Oh, okay, okay. The, the feeling is mutual. How does the uh, Windrush GLA, which is the Windrush Generation Legacy Association, support and advocate for the rights of uh, the Windrush Generation? Um, can you repeat that question again, sir? So how does the uh, the GLA, oh. uh, your, uh, Windrush, your, your Legacy associa- Association, support and advocate for the rights of the Windrush Generation? Right. Um, Yes, um, our charity organisation, we do a vast um, things for the community and we promote um, a good race of community relationship building, cohesion, and we try to eliminate discrimination, encouraging quality and opportunities for, you know, placing particular emphasis on addressing issues of the race and uh, cultural diversity within the community as well as, you know, the WGLA within itself. So there's many things. Okay, and uh, what initiatives or projects uh, do you do uh, to preserve the cultural heritage of the Windrush generation? Right, um, our projects, we've got loads of projects. Um, For example, um, the charity highlights African and Caribbean contribution to both World War public services, commences and other areas of um, social, economic and cultural life in the British and the Britain Commonwealth. So it's about trying to deliver that and bring that awareness in the community. Mm-hmm. And how can you the know? community and the younger generations learn from and engage with the experiences of the Windrush generation? Uh, our younger generation, um, what we're trying to do is to do it through the Pan London charity, welcome schools and groups, you know, getting in touch with us um, through our um, educational, we've got a pop-up experience that we're trying to um, create and, you know, that's in the pipeline. Also, hybrid lessons, learning lessons and sessions that we're doing, which is a charity which can be online, you know, mm-hmm. all those sort of things. We're trying to, you know, connect you know, because obviously it's a digital world that we're engaging with of this generation mm. and of the era that we're living in as well. So we don't want to, you know, disconnect or let other descendants be disconnected so we connect them through the cyber world. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, what what's coming up next? What's, what's the uh, next upcoming event or celebration uh, you'll be doing? We got, yeah, we've got July, we've got our Croydon Carnival, August, Next month, we've got our Saturday's Domino and Ludo Club, Nottingham Carnival. There's so much. We've got a weekly food bank. Um, also in August, we've got our youth AI and VR coding workshops. Mm-hmm. Um, September, we've got a radio link, link up Windrush 75. Um, there's so much. There's so much. I don't want to give out too, too, too much. You can catch up on our website, but yeah. <laughs> um, November, we've got our Windrush 75. 75th dinner and dance mm-hmm. um, in November as well. We got a remembrance event. You know, October as we know, Black Poppy. You know, Black History Month. September's yeah. a Black Poppy project on board. You know, so there's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot. 
And what, what did you guys do on 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 this uh, Windrush Day, the twenty second of June? Any any special event of June? Well, what was is again? It's a community thing that we did, mm-hmm. and because we're a charity, um, it was like gathering the people into the community, into the uni, and we gave them, you know, um, a celebration of you know the history and the legacy of mm-hmm. the Windrush, you know. And uh, what was the feedback? What, what was the, what did the people say or uh, the, oh, the people the, who joined? The elderly people and the community they still connected because again it's um, letting them tell their testimonies in a mm-hmm. safe environment for the next generation, like myself and behind me, to learn and hear their their, their testimonies, their stories of what they had to go through and how you know they were invited and built up, you know, Great Britain for the Commonwealth, you know, mm-hmm. and it's about the awareness. But like I said, all the info, they can catch up us on our, um, on, um, our website or it's, again, info at the WGLA.co.uk. You know, they can send things there and inquire there and, you know, yeah. or even on our Instagram, it's um, hashtag the WGLA. Um, Windrush, sorry, the, um, hashtag the WGLA Windrush. Okay. Well, okay. I was, all right. We were just speaking earlier to to a lady, Mrs. Lee Somside, who told us some of her stories and her challenges and the Windrush yeah, generation. So, you have anything uh, personal or anything from your, your elders uh, you want to share? Well, being in the charity organization of the WGLA, um, the Windrush, and our unit is up in Croydon, um, with Gift Centre. Mm-hmm. Being in that charity unit, I've seen and learned so much from the testimonies of the people that's come in and seen the relics of how it brings back memories from the furniture, from the pictures and the testimonies. And also listening to the lady who you had previously, prior on, talk about the education. Hearing what she was saying was very profound because I might have been one of those children that went through that system, i.e. what we have education today, GCSEs. It used to be A-levels and Mm O-levels. And being a student coming through the system of the GCSEs, my era was the first for it to be tested on to what we have today. And as that lady was describing, what we have of children's SEN special needs um, wasn't highlighted. Everybody was just put in one location, one room, one spot. Yeah. But now the diversity and the exposure of how education is being implemented, it's very um, profound that, you know, people could be misunderstood or misrepresented back in those days. Now everything's been highlighted with yeah. now the titles SEN. But back in those time, when I was going through school, children with you know special education needs wasn't highlighted, and especially Afro-Caribbean youths, when you know children were probably misunderstood about their behavior. Would, you know, you so it's that, very. Would you say that things have actually improved for um, uh, uh, for <laughs> black people for black community? <laughs> that sounds like an entanglement in chat with question. Will I say things have improved? Um, again, it depends on a person's perspective and objective mindset. But 
I will say things have um, been enhanced. I wouldn't say things have changed literally, but change is good. And again, it's your perspective of what type of change are you looking for. But there has been change. Right. You okay. know, in a roundabout way. But on the retrospect, there hasn't been no change. So, again, mm-hmm. it depends on what side of the coin you're looking at. But a coin is a yeah. coin. Yeah, sure. But Excellent. Yeah. Thank right. You. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Christopher Barrett. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, again, really a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much for Thank your you. contribution to the show this morning. Thank you. Thank you. So that was uh, Mr. Christopher Barrett, who is a team leader of the Windrush Generation Legacy Association, talking to us about uh, a lot of the initiatives and projects that the GLA has, um, as well as some of the challenges that uh, uh, his generation actually went through. Uh, right. So um, we are this morning talking about the Wind- Windrush Generation. And just to recap, 22nd June 2023 was the 75th anniversary of the arrival of the first passengers of the Empire of Windrush um, ship in the UK. The day celebrates the contribution and achievements of that generation as well as their descendants. Um, The ship um, was, um, after which the community is named, the full name of the ship was SS um, SS Empire Windrush and um, uh, many of the people that uh, actually were part of that generation um, took part in various fields um, uh, here in education, in healthcare, in other areas, in post-war reconstruction here in the country, and uh, uh, however, uh, faced a lot of challenges as well because the, the country wasn't prepared for mm-hmm. the um uh, for the arrival of um, such a large number of, uh, as uh, our guest said, a large number of black people. And uh, and that really caused uh, a lot of issues for, for that generation as well as um, uh, their children. As uh, we heard from Miss uh, Mrs. Lee Tomside, that she had a problem even um, getting a house after getting married uh, and she couldn't get a mortgage as well. So, yeah, a lot of challenges. We shall continue discussion on this topic. We are coming up to the 8 o'clock news. Uh, we shall now take a break for that. But when we come back, we will continue discussion on this very important topic. We are talking about the 75th anniversary of Windrush. Please do stay tuned. Um, please also, uh, this is a live show, con- contribute uh, by calling us at 0208-687-7878. Um, the lines are open. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We shall now take um, a break for the 8 o'clock news. And after the 8 o'clock news, we will continue this discussion on the Windrush generation. Ashhadu anna Muhammadan 
listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. The Promised Messiah, peace be on him, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Islam, states, Sin, which indeed is a poison, is born when a man is wanting in obedience to God and is empty of his love and his affectionate remembrance. The fate of a man whose heart has become cold to the love of God is like that of an uprooted tree, no longer capable of drawing the sap of life from the soil. As such, a tree gradually withers and dies. So like the dryness of the tree, sin overwhelms the heart. The remedy for this state of dryness, according to the law of nature, is of three types. Number one, love. Number two, istighfar, that is, seeking forgiveness of Allah. It literally means a desire to bury or to cover, reminding one that as long as the root of the tree is buried in the soil, it can hope to bring forth green foliage. Number three, the third remedy is tawbah, which means to turn towards God in all humility, drawing the sap of life and to bring oneself closer to Him, to break loose with the help of righteous deeds from the enveloping cover of sinfulness. Tawbah cannot be achieved merely by word of mouth. In fact, Tawbah can be perfected only with the help of righteous deeds. All acts of goodness are aimed at achieving perfection of Tawbah. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. We are this morning talking about the Windrush generation, the 75th anniversary of Windrush. And before we went on to the break, uh, we were talking to two guests, uh, Ms. Lee Tomside and Christopher Barrett who were sharing their experiences um, about the Windrush generation as well as uh, uh, some of the things that uh, the Windrush Generation Legacy Association is doing to uh, not only preserve the cultural heritage but also to uh, engage the younger generations with the experiences of the Windrush generation. Let's go uh, now to our next guests uh, for this segment. Uh, who are Fatia Warren and um, Dennis Lichmo. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. 
Good morning. Thank you very morning. much. Uh, morning. Morning, Dennis. Morning, Fatia. So, um, uh, uh, Fatia, you are the chair of the group and a founding member. And Dennis, uh, you are the military researcher and a founding member of the Caribbean Family History Group. Tell us a little bit about um, uh, uh, about your work. Maybe we can start with Fatia Warren. Yes. Okay. Um, it started many years. No, it started in 2008 when um, a group of like-minded people wanted to do some research on Caribbean history. The Solihull Library at the time were offering courses, but it was geared to more European white history. And they recognized basically a gap in the market, so to speak. And they had somebody help do the Caribbean research. But from that, um, a group of us, Dennis included, and some of us still founding members, decided to continue this with, you know, open it to the wider Caribbean group. Uh, yeah, Caribbean group. And so that's what we've been doing. And we basically meet the last Saturday of every month at Solihull Core Library. And it's a library initiative that has been able to, enabled us to do this because they've given us the space and time and so forth. So what we do, we show people how to do their research. We guide them, we learn ourselves as we go along the way, and that's how it's progressed. And to date, we have members basically across the world because due to COVID, we've had to meet on Zoom. So relating it back to the Windrush generation, um, I'm a second interest generation person myself. My parents came over in 1960. My father's 60. My mum is 61. Um, but we can help, as in the Caribbean Family History Group, we can help people navigate to find like those shipping records for those who came pre-1960 because the shipping records date from 1948 to 1960. But, right. Yeah. And I'm just, we're just here happy to help. Excellent, thank you. Uh, Dennis? Hi, in, in relation to myself, um, as Fatih has said, I'm a founding member. Uh, I did the course, um, and then after the course, we then um, this talk and decided that we would do our um, former group to do our own research. And as a result of that, um, we sort of put it out to... Uh, other members of the community um, once we'd gained some knowledge that we were available to help them and as Fatia indicated Solihull Library um, was uh, facilitated us in terms of providing you know res resources in terms of rooms and computers and enable us to have free access to Family Search, which is a website for researching so that's where it, it, it all started and uh, as Fatia said we we continue in our research, you know, our own family tree, um, to do our own family tree, but also we're happy to support others. Um, I'm the uh, the group's military researcher. I, I actually served in the, in the military, and my interest around becoming the military researcher for the group was that as part of doing my own research, um, I found out that my grandfather, I'm a great uncle, served in the First World War which I didn't know until I was um, doing the research. So then I, I started researching further into the 
um, Caribbean, you know, uh, contribution to Britain for over 400 years from a military perspective. Hmm. Right. Um, Fata, you mentioned uh, that you are a second generation person. Uh, tell mm-hmm. us maybe some of your experiences. Uh, we were talking to uh, to a guest uh, to a guest earlier, and uh, she mentioned that uh, the second generation faced uh, a lot of issues with uh, education and even healthcare. Did you uh, did you experience any of those difficulties? Um, I would say only slightly, and that is because. Um, as you might have heard, you know, many people from the Caribbean came over and they wanted to stop five years, etc. Well, my parents stopped 17 years and then they went back to Jamaica. So I, I don't feel as, um, I'm not sure what word to use. Um, I don't feel that my education was, I had to fight that much because I was in Jamaica and I had that founding and I had that group of people also knowing education was the way forward and we, and we worked together. So for me, coming back to England, I noticed it strongly that black people here, not just Caribbean, but black people generally had to struggle for their right to education to the point I think that some of them were disheartened and they didn't have the energy to go on. But tell us a, maybe, wise, sorry, yeah. but uh, tell us maybe a little bit about about that. So when you say black people struggled uh, to fight for the right for education, what exactly do you mean? Were there not enough schools? Was it difficult to get admission in schools? How? I think it was um, partly difficulty in admission, partly or mostly being recognised for their worth by the teachers and. Um, no, they they weren't heard. I think because they were seen as different, and also because of different cultural things, like mm. um, with their hair and um, you know girls with their hair, and so they had to told to leave school, things like that. Um, they weren't able to freely just be themselves to learn, and I think because of that, and because they were um, not supported they became the ones that were so noisy in the classroom and so found other ways to to occupy themselves and not move forward with the education because they thought it wasn't worth it. Yeah, sure. I can understand uh, that. Uh, Right. Um, What about your um, experience, Dennis? Well, my experience, I was actually born in Jamaica, yeah, and uh, my parents... uh, left uh, myself and my sister behind to be looked after by relatives, primarily my, uh, my, one of my father's um, sister, my auntie. Uh, my father came here in 1961 and, my, and later sent for my mother, who joined him in 63. Uh, they later, so we were left behind for six years, me and my sister, and then we came to join our parents in 1969. So uh, I've got experience of going through the education system in Jamaica uh, in the early years and then coming to this country and, and going through the education system. And it was, it was tough. Um, 
Mm-hmm. We had a decent education in Jamaica, but when I arrived here, um, I had to adjust, and I needed time to adjust to a different system. So there was a bit of struggle in the end, but through determination, my hard work and support mm-hmm. from my parents, primarily my mother, I managed to, to, to get through it. So like Fatia, I'm second generation mm-hmm. in, in relation to the Windrush generation. And it was tough uh, um, just in terms of staying on education. And I did fairly well in CSEs and, you know, left, left school and, and wanted to do like a, a trade. But it's like back in the day, and, and this resonates with a lot of um, my uh, friends and colleagues. We, when we leave school, we went to careers uh, ad, uh, center to, mm. to obviously talk to a, a careers advisor. And I found that the career advisor was kind of streaming me into work in 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 factory when I in when I wanted to become a motor mechanic, motor mechanic. And mm-hmm. I heard it said with other um, with that um, uh, from other friends and colleagues that they encountered the same thing where we were kind of stream off into factories rather than have to get in support and advice with our aspirations of learning a trade. Our parents have always said the best thing for us to do is to learn a trade. Once you've got a trade, you've got it for life. So that was uh, my experience. Incidentally, just going back to when we arrived, I realized that we were streamed as well as people coming from the Caribbean, young children, youngsters. We were streamed into certain schools and um, certain classes, you know, it was notable that the majority of people who went to my school was either from the Caribbean or from India or um, Pakistan at the time. And to be honest, the, the white kids that were at our schools were mainly from an Irish background. So I, I sort of reflect back now and think, oh, yeah, we, we kind of stream into certain schools, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's my experience anyway of in the education system. But yeah. mm-hmm. further from that, um, you know, I, I progressed because I was determined and I made my mm-hmm. way through life later and, and got further qualification and better and uh, through college and even uni. But that was under my own determination to get, yeah. to, to learn a trade. Mm-hmm. So how was the different, uh, the, the system, how was that different from Jamaica and uh, the British school system? Uh, what what, what well, are the differences? Well, well, in Jamaica, um, you know, I'm, I'm at school. Uh, 99% of the pupils are uh, black, mm-hmm. uh, you know, African uh, Caribbean um, people. The teachers are all um, African Caribbean. So yeah. you, you felt that people understood you, you know, because they're the same as you. When I went through the education system here, you felt that there was a... A, a, a level of, um, you know, well, I'll, I'll be blunt, you know, r- racism, you know, mm-hmm. um, not all teachers, majority teachers were fine, but you just felt that you, um, they made made you feel different, you know? Of course, in, no in doubt, it, it must have been different. Uh, but uh, I'm more specific um, asking about the, the system. Um, your experience, you, you talked about it, but what was the education system, the syllabus, um, the, the, the history they taught? Was that similar, or uh, what? What were the main differences you felt when you when you moved? Well, it was um, it was so much for some of us as well. Even though um, they, we came from the English uh, speaking uh, uh, Caribbean, mm-hmm. obviously, basically the islands that Britain sort of colonized and ruled. 
um, we we already speak in English, but I know that some of us were streamed into, for instance, English for speakers of other languages. You know, so they they looked down on whatever education we'd had before as if mm. it wasn't on par, on the same level. Mm-hmm. You know, without um, even sort of testing us. You know, they you know, so that was one of the ex- ex- experience. So. It, 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 it was difficult. It was difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, again, back to you, Fatia. Uh, what do you think is the situation nowadays, and uh, the, the, the generation, the second or third generation living here in the UK, uh, in terms of their opportunities, um, their treatment? Um, how? What, what do you say about that? Um, I think they still all have to. F- well, we all still have to fight for it. It's it's not given. Um, but I think more people are aware of their rights, what they can do, how they can get help. I think um, also I work in education and um, I support people with um, neurodiversity, in other words, learning difficulties, mm-hmm. uh, mostly those who are dyslexic. And... I think what I'm finding is that everybody now is being given that opportunity to, or, or more people, given that opportunity to learn. And it's not just that because if they don't spell well or read well or whatnot, it's not, they're no longer classed as dumb because they're black or whatever. It's now recognized that they may be dyslexic. And so yeah. um, I'm finding, I'm supporting a lot of students, and this is students at universities or apprentices who are dyslexic, who are from the Caribbean. And in a way, I'm happy to see that, to see that they're given that opportunity as well as everybody else. And mm-hmm. I support them as just as well as everybody else. And so they're making progress, and I'm happy about that. Great. Um, and now tell us a bit about the, the, the Caribbean Family History Group. Uh, what do you guys do and uh, how are you supporting um, the, the Windrush generation or the, the generations after that? Well, in, in research, we show them how to do the research. We're not necessarily doing it for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, there are those that need support and depends on the support, like if it's military support, that goes straight to Dennis and he helps them in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, we have other um, experts in other areas uh, for that. And we don't just ca- cover, say, Jamaica because they think, you know, Jamaica is the be all. It's not. We, we do all the islands. So we do um, St. Kitts and Nevis, Barbados, etc. The people in our group are not, are from several islands. Mm-hmm. So again, Barbados, St. Kitts, Nevis, Montserrat, etc., etc., Trinidad. And, and these are people as well that come online when we meet online at the end of the month. So we help them to do the research, how to do the research. If it's not an area we've covered before, we, we learn with them, we share our knowledge. Mm-hmm. But also, what we learn is that in doing the research, you're learning about social history, you're learning about the family, you're learning about, you know, why they moved from one area to another or why they didn't move, what kind of jobs they had, you know, how was it classified? And, you know, you're you're finding connections that you perhaps did not know you had, as Dennis said, like finding about his um, uncle, um, great uncle and um, grandfather. 
yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I think it was uh, lovely speaking with you guys. Uh, um, yeah, um, can, can and thank I, you, Dennis just, and Fatih as well. Right. Can I just add very sure. quickly? Sure. Yeah, that um, in terms of Windrush uh, and Generation, we've done a lot of research looking back, for instance, at those early pioneers who came on the Empire Windrush in mm-hmm. 1948. I've actually got copies of the shipping list, so we know all the names of the people that came over, or their age, their occupation, which uh, Caribbean islands they're coming from. So um, at the moment, we're uh, interviewing our elders, mm-hmm. those who were, um, you know, from the Rinrush generation. Uh, we um, including um, um, young people into into the interviewing processes, mm-hmm. you know, their fam, their uh, grandkids, their great grandkids. Sometimes we'll get them to do the interviewing themselves. And that's with a view to put on an exhibition at Solihull Library for Black History Month and telling the stories of our uh, elders uh, and their journey to this country and uh, their experience, you know, over those years. So uh, that's uh, in October of this year, Black History Month. Yeah, so that's one of the projects that we're doing currently with our elders. Right. Excellent. Thank you very much, uh, Fatia. Thank you very much, Dennis, for joining us this morning. It was lovely speaking with both of you. Have a lovely day. Thank you. you. Peace be with you. Bye-bye. So so that was um, uh, Fatia Warren and Dennis Lichmore. and uh, Fatih is the chair and group of the group and a founding member. Uh, and Dennis uh, is the military researcher and founding member of Caribbean Family History Group, talking to us and sharing their um, their research and work, and as well as experiences being part of the second generation um, Windrush. Right. Okay. Um, we are uh, coming up to eight twenty-two a.m. We will now take a very quick break, and when we come back, we will talk about uh, what Islam has to say about justice, which is really at the um, at the core of the issue we're talking about. Please do stay tuned. Allah Akbar Allah. أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمداً Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show. This morning we're talking about the Windrush generation. We're talking about this is the um, 75th. This year is the 75th anniversary of uh, the 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 Windrush generation. Um, and to be precise, um, the first ship that arrived here was on the 22nd of June 2023. Um, right. 
Uh, Imam Imanan, what what is the Islamic concept of um, uh, of justice and fair play of equality between races? That is the issue uh, at the crux of uh, the issue that we are we're trying to uh, to grapple with here. So you know, uh, a generation yeah. came here of black people who uh, who weren't welcomed. Uh, in the manner that they uh, probably deserved and um, they definitely deserved and they were also um uh, while they actually contributed massively to the uh, to the local economy they were brought here actually to rebuild the country after the second world war so uh what does islam has to say about justice yes uh, justice is um of course very important everywhere but the importance Islam puts on justice is so immense that uh, there's a verse in the Holy Quran which mentions that even if you have to give a testimony against your parents, mm. your friends, your your kin, uh, you know your own children, um, you have to you have to take the side of justice, not the side of your family. Right. Um, so the same situation here as well. Um, obviously, people coming from a different country, a, a different color, it might be a a it's a different experience for the people at that time but uh, you have to look at what they have done uh, the support they have given the the contributions they have made to the society mm. so if you judge someone on color or on their culture uh, then imagine a white person going to an african country how he will be treated mm. uh, you don't see that that much uh, in, in african countries the, the black community in fact they're welcomed they're yeah. very welcoming mm. yeah they're very welcoming uh, so that's why we, we have to put these differences aside and we are all human beings and uh, this is what justice demands that we we treat each other at least uh, as much as we deserve uh, you don't have to do any extra favors mm. but return the favor uh, if a person is nice to you he helped you then return the favor in helping him uh, instead of uh, being uh, um you know, judgmental and being suspicious, uh, these things, they always create more problems. Mm. So, uh, yeah, in terms of the, the immigration, uh, His Holiness, um, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, he has said um, in one of his sermons that the authorities should seek to help genuine immigrants settle here and to stand up uh, and help them to stand up on their own feet. And immigrants should not simply take benefits from the country they migrate to, rather they should be encouraged to enter the labor force and actively contribute to the society. And this is exactly what these, this Windrush generation has done. Mm. So now on the other side, the authorities, the government, uh, the locals, they should do their part and mm. helping them, uh, helping their, their children, their generations. <laughs> My mind uh, goes back to, uh, you know, 1400 years ago when... Um, uh, when Prophet Muhammad may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him gave uh, the final sermon and uh, in that sermon he he talked about uh, equality as well tell us a little bit more about that yes so that was actually the last sermon of the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him uh, and you can imagine it's the last thing he will say so it must mm. be one of the most important things mm. and in that sermon you, as you said, he was talking about justice. Mm. There's a very famous quote or very famous saying uh, of the Holy Prophet where he says that no black person is superior to a white person and no white person is superior to a black person mm. and no Arab is superior to a non-Arab and no, no non-Arab is superior to any Arab. Mm. So that is the, the, the fundamental 
um, and you know the essence of justice here. Hmm. That don't think anyone is more superior and don't think anyone hmm. uh, deserves more or less than you. Hmm. And I think this also brings us straight to our next topic, uh, which is also a bit relatable to this, which is about football and racism. Exactly. So we will be talking about this more. Exactly. So yeah, let's let's uh, let's uh, you know this is an excellent segue. So let's talk about that. So so racism in sport is is not new, and and uh, this has been making uh, its way to the headlines um, a lot more frequently in the in the last few months and years with. Uh, um, especially with black Brazilian forward um, uh, Vinicius Jr. suffering yet another disgusting episode of racist abuse during a match in Spain while playing for Real Madrid against Valencia on the 21st of May. He was heckled by fans and was called a monkey. Um, we've heard similar instances um, uh, in, uh, in, in the... Uh, um, in the sport, uh, in other sports, including cricket as well. In 2020, the uh, murder of George Floyd was a catalyst uh, for the five sport councils responsible for investing in and growing sports across the country to come together to explore racial inequalities in sport and to look at how reflective our sporting system is of uh, uh, UK society. Um, talking about cricket again, a landmark report found that the English cricket um, uh, English cricket suffers from widespread and deep-rooted racism, sexism, elitism, and class-based discrimination at all levels of the game, and urgently needs reform. The Independent Commission for Equity in Cricket, which published the report, urges the sport to also uh, face up to the fact that it's not banter or just a few bad apples, which is actually causing the problem. The England and mm-hmm. Wales Cricket Board responded uh, to the report by issuing an unreserved apology for its failure to adequately tackle discrimination. So the findings were a seminal moment for the sport. It pledged to respond to 44 recommendations made by the ICEC within three months. Yes, um, and uh, of course racism in every sport, there's some sort of racism which is completely wrong. Um, I remember that there was there's a few incidences in the history of football as well. Um, one of them was against a a, a black player, Patrice Evra, uh, who was uh, who received some racist comments from another player, um, and uh, that player was banned for I think eight matches, and he got a huge fine as well, uh, showing that the, the the football community does not appreciate any of this. Um, behavior you see banners and you know messages of we stand against racism so uh, I think the football um, community UEFA and FIFA all these communities are doing a great part uh, doing a really good job in tackling this but there are things you, which are out of your control um, mostly in this in this case of Vinicius Jr. as well who received some racist comments from the from the uh, audience from the from the um, people in the stands uh, now there's so many people there it's really hard to control these things but uh, as as decent human beings I think we should look out for each other um, anyone standing in the stands should make sure to to um, scold that person to tell him that what you're doing is wrong um, and stand against it now even uh, I think I, I was watching uh, in the highlights where this happened and he, he got angry Vinicius Junior got angry and he uh, kind of fought back 
he'd start throwing things back at the at the stands, mm. which is also not uh, is, um, inappropriate. Yeah. Inappropriate. Yeah. yeah, it's not. It's not right. Uh, no matter what he, what kind of um, problems he's facing, he can't be creating more problems. Mm. Uh, but you see that this this thing is triggering people. It's it's uh, yeah. it's a serious. It's creating issue. a reaction. Yes. Yeah. You you hear um, uh, sometimes that there's a, a monkey chance people. Uh, imitate monkeys when they're playing uh, when they see uh, black players playing or um, foreign players so all these things um, they're a real problem mm. uh, as you mentioned cricket as well absolutely yeah let's now go straight to our first guest for this segment Callum Lee who is the CEO of Sporting Wellness uh, he's 23 years old and started sporting wellness uh, when he was 18 in 2019. Wow. as peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much for having me. So, Callum, uh, uh, let me ask you straight up. Do you think uh, racism is endemic in sport and do you think this can ever go away? Well, I, I think we've definitely seen recently that um, cricket, for example, has... Um, you know, taking that first step and acknowledging that it has some some really deep rooted issues. Um, yeah, and, and 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 I think racial disparities have existed in sport for a long time, and I think it's important that people recognise that racial disparities can come in several different ways, and and they don't always have to be, you know, really direct forms of of racism. You can have uh, much more indirect. Um, instances where where this sort of stuff happens. So that can be whether it's representation within teams or administration and coaches, um, whether that's access to opportunities, uh, stereotyping and biases. And so um, I think it's it, it's really important that people look beyond the really direct forms of racism that potentially you. you in the headlines in the news a lot which are of course extremely important to take um, you know hugely seriously but but also to look at the deeper layers of it and, and look at where these indirect forms of racial disparity can can come into sport because yes one 100 percent um, you know we we have seen in different sports that it has been quite systemic and, and much more needs to be done to address it in the future what sort of impact uh, does racism have uh, on an athlete's mental health? Obviously, it'll always depend on, on the actual instance and, and, and the athlete themselves, but experiencing any form of racial disparity is always going to have some sort of, um, or, or it's always going to be extremely likely to have some sort of impact on mental health. Um, you know, it, it, it's an incredibly isolating experience to, to go through something like that. Um, and it is essentially just going to increase the likelihood of experiencing a mental health issue, whether there's already mental health issues that that individual is dealing with at that time. Um, of course, those can be heightened. Um, and it also plays a part in increasing the risk of experiencing new mental health issues. Um, you know, n- not to mention that if, if, if that individual is an athlete, there's also um, a performance aspect to that. And I would argue that it'd be incredibly hard to perform at your best as an aspiring or, or professional athlete if, um, if, if, if you are experiencing uh, racial prejudice to, to some degree. And so, um, 
it's it's of course always going to have a knock-on effect and and at sporting wellness for a charity that provides free mental health care to to any competitive athlete in the uk age over 16 regardless of whether that's been caused by a sporting issue or a non-sporting issue and so um i would hugely encourage anyone who has been infected however big or small um to to get in touch with us and uh, and utilize the free services Mm -hmm. and are there any anti-discrimination legislations ensuring uh, access to sport for all and penalizing racist acts well yeah there, there was obviously the um equality act in in 2010 which essentially was a, a piece of legislation that, that brought together i think it was about 110 120 separate pieces of legislation into into one single act and essentially that provided uh, not just for sport but, but overall it provided a, a legal framework to to protect the, the rights of the individual experiencing that sort of um, prejudice, um, but I think going forward into um, you know in, into the future, the online safety bill um, is probably going to be quite a pivotal moment. Really, um, I think online um, discriminatory abuse is is a huge problem in in all sports, from from the grassroots right through to the professional level, um, and I know that that bill in particular has has been going back and forth now and there are some privacy concerns with it but I think eventually regulation of, of big social media platforms um, is essential because going into the you know the modern age digital uh, and, and social media discriminatory abuse is going to be something that's incredibly important to, to handle. Excellent. Callum D, thank you so very much for joining us. It was lovely speaking with you. Peace be with you. Have a lovely day. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Bye-bye. So that was um, Callum Lee, who is the CEO of uh, Sporting Wellness. Let me now go straight to our last guest uh, for the show, which is Heather Douglas. Um, Heather Douglas is the head of coaching and policy at the UK Coaching and leads on policy area for duty of care. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Heather. Uh, tell us, Heather, uh, do you think racism in sport can racism in general can uh, because you know sport is a reflection on, on on life in general do you think it can ever be abolished well that's that's a really big question i mean ideally hopefully but as you've just mentioned sport and physical activity as a sector does is a reflection of society mm. so we just need to to understand um how we can as a sector a collective approach to the sector how we can tackle inequalities from grassroots to podium and the boardroom. Mm. Um, how do we stop incidents like uh, you know people calling out uh, monkey or whatever uh, uh, those chants in a in a stadium environment? Well, I mean that's really difficult. I mean with Vinicius Junior just recently, it was absolutely abhorrent to see how he mm. was treated. Um, I don't think there's a silver bullet to this, but as I said, I think there's a, a collective sector approach. I think um, generally society needs to understand cultural differences and accept cultural differences, but actually seek to understand those rather than just calling them out um, through ignorance or just uh, not knowing how people lead their lives and the beliefs that they hold. So um, are there any repercussions for people who actually do such acts at the moment? Uh, are they given any bans, you know, uh, I think they should be probably given a life ban, but uh, does something like that actually work? 
Well, we do know that there's a, there's a lot of initiatives out there, particularly for fans, like Kick It Out, so where um, fans can have an app, and if they see or hear any inappropriate behaviour, they can, they can use the app to notify this, mm-hmm. uh, and then um, the stewards or the, the powers that be can in, uh, in kind of develop sanctions, and we do know that people have had lifetime bans, but I think every sport responds differently, but I know that every sport is really trying its best to stamp this out. So how are coaches equipped to deal with this, with, with racism? Well, I think just um, here at UK Coaching, we're here for mm-hmm. the coach. So we are kind of, there's three million coaches working across the UK from playground to podium. And we support them with uh, world-leading education and training on a number of areas about how to coach, but also how to uh, be the best coach for your participants. And we've developed our duty to care hub and digital badge where this equips coaches with a number of areas of information including diversity inclusion safeguarding safety practice mental health and well-being and physical well-being and through this education program coaches can begin to understand how to look after their participants and how to behave and how to create culturally competent coaching environments through honest and open dialogue which builds trust mm-hmm. And recently a report was released on uh, equity in cricket. Mm -hmm. Uh, What are your thoughts on the widespread racism, discrimination and sexism highlighted in the report? I mean, it's it's a damning read from the press and also from the report, but I think the 44 recommendations that were in that report are really a hard-hitting approach to try and um, sort this problem out. I mean, the report does say that not everyone involved in cricket is, is, um, is guilty of this, And it's only until we get to recommendation 39 that this refers to coaches and volunteers having mandatory training around uh, equity, uh, inclusion and diversity, which is is a really strong message. And we believe that all coaches across the UK, if they delved into our duty to care hub, they would begin to get an awareness and an understanding of how their behaviours or their attitudes can impact on participation levels and even performance levels performance levels for athletes mm. there's many like uh, people were speaking out in social media that there needs to be done more do you think uh, that the organizations are doing enough and what more can they do we could always do more we can um, you know it, this this isn't as you said can this ever be getting rid of I don't I don't think so there's only always going to be sexes of society that maybe just have a, a very strong belief against other beliefs but I, I do know that across the sector, we have never been closer to having equality, diverse, diversity and inclusion at the top of our agenda, hmm. uh, particularly through the investors like Sport England, whose whole 10-year strategy is based around tackling inequalities. And the same is going for UK Sport. So two of the top funders within the nation are actually trying to meet this head-on, and other organisations are being held to account to try and stamp this behaviour out. So I think it's a really good thing. I think we're at the start of the journey. We're nowhere near the finish, but as long as we all start, we'll get there. Do you think um, media is uh, is playing the right role when it comes to, uh, to, uh, to, re- to addressing the problem of racism? Uh, Black Lives Matter is, is obviously a big thing these days, but you know, you, you, you see other issues. For example, there's, uh, uh, you would see, for example, there's uh, 
Um, uh, it, there's a lot of uh, coverage, for example. Uh, there's a lot of Islamophobia uh, being spread by yes. uh, by yes. the media as well. So, what sort of role do you think the media is playing um, in in this country and across the world, probably, to to, to probably uh, exacerbate this rather than control this? I think well, um, the media has a has a hugely a huge responsibility to mm. communicate the truth mm. um, and I think what has happened recently when the media has, has picked up on a story it's actually become something good because people are sitting up and listening to what's being said so they can actually do something about it without it just being brushed under the carpet so from a, a responsibility of the media they do have a responsibility in the media to call this behavior out so, and I think that's a good thing um, I probably couldn't comment on whether they're exacerbating the situation. That's in terms of the, the receiver of that communication and whether they feel that they feel compelled to, to stand up against or for some of this information. Heather, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Really a pleasure to speak to you. Have a lovely no, day. Peace and with you. you. Thank you so much. Thank Goodbye. you. Bye bye. So that was Heather Douglas, uh, who is the head of coaching and policy at UK Coaching and leads on the policy area for duty of care. Right. Okay. Excellent. So um, we've we've spoken to um, to to a number of uh, of guests uh, today. This uh, to uh, through the duration of um, uh, of this program, and we've talked about two issues which are very interconnected. So we talked about uh, Windrush um, and we've um, also talked about sport and racism. And as you very correctly pointed out, both of them are very, very interrelated because it, uh, at the end of the day, it's about racial harmony. So what is the message um, Islam gives uh, about racism and equality? Allah the Almighty states in the Holy Quran um, that, O mankind, we have created you from a male and a female, and we have made you into tribes and sub-tribes, that you may know one another. And verily, the most honorable among you in the sight of Allah is he who is the most righteous among you. Uh, maybe most of us remember that this this very verse was also uh, recited or quoted in the start of the FIFA World Cup, uh, which took place in Qatar, and even at that time, uh, many people I think appreciated and um, they they loved this that this this message was sent across in the beginning of the one of the biggest World Cups. The verse outright refutes that one is superior or inferior to any other, simply on the basis of race or um, tribe. Um, in fact, it declares that the only thing that matters is a person's righteousness uh, or a person's character, morals. And the Holy Quran um, states that while Islam recognizes the differences amongst people, uh, it does not allow such distinctions to promote enmity. There are differences. We are created differently. Um, some are darker, some are lighter, some have a different accent, some have different cultures, uh, but our common humble beginning alone is a manifestation of the wisdom of uh, the all-knowing God, and this fundamental principle to root out racism was firmly uh, reiterated by the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, um, 
at the time of his last pilgrimage, the last sermon, which which we also mentioned before. But I repeat again because these words are so powerful and so important. Uh, the reason I think nowadays this might seem something like very obvious that no black person is superior to a white person. But if you go back to 1400 years ago at that time when the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he came to reform humanity. Slavery, racism, this was this was a common thing. I mean, for, for a black person to be a slave was something which was common. It, it, it was normal. So the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, came and he said that no Arab or no white person is superior to a black person or vice versa. So making that statement in that time is 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 the significance of this. And then the statement clearly also indicates that human beings have neither the right nor the authority to judge anybody, anybody's superiority. Only God, only Allah the Almighty, who has the knowledge of the true intentions and deeds and commitments of an individual is rightly placed to judge the greatness of any man. The Holy Prophet of Islam has championed the rights of all people, of all races and of all beliefs and was a source of unparalleled mercy and grace for all mankind. You don't see racism in Islam because racism doesn't have a place in Islam. It doesn't have a place in the world either, but people, because of their own um, whatever reasons, I, I don't understand what the reason could be, uh, they do tend to have racial tendencies. But the real measure of greatness is the good we spread and the good we bring to other human beings and our inherited biological characteristics have no role in determining our superiority or greatness or whatsoever. So Islam expects us to act with justice um, and to reject any thoughts or actions based on um, any notion of racial superiority or even social or economic or political dominance. And to eradicate racism, Islam offers the highest ideal of wholeheartedly accepting equality at the heart of every human interaction. And in the eyes of God, we are all equal. On many occasions, His Holiness, um, the current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Mas um, Masroor Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, has stated that unity is mankind's greatest strength. He also stressed on this when uh, Brexit was happening, where he was warning the UK that leaving the EU, leaving this, this unity, I, uh, is 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 not is not gonna benefit. It doesn't matter how much money you're gonna save doing this. The unity you receive through this is is so much more greater and more important and has more benefits. In the book, a message for a time, His Ho uh, Holiness firmly opposed all forms of intolerance, including racism, and stated that by uniting in prayers to God Almighty and by discharging our responsibilities to our fellow neighbours, we are able to fulfil our true purpose in life. In doing so, we try our best to bring about the peaceful changes needed in the world today. And he further says, irrespective of differences of race, religion or social background, we are united as human beings. And so it is vital that we interact with other people rather than isolating ourselves or only mingling with members of our own particular community. And in, in accordance with the principles of justice, Islam offers provisions to ensure the absence of racist practices. Um, these are inherent in the five pillars of faith. The first, our creed is, there is none worthy of worship but Allah and Muhammad 
sallallahu alaihi wasallam is the messenger of Allah. Now, as as a Muslim, this is this is all you need to do to be a Muslim. You need to believe that there is one God and that the the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him was his messenger. Uh, the second is the act of prayer, which includes standing shoulder to shoulder with fellow worshippers, whether whatever color he is, whatever height. Um, the only difference is the gender that we separate men and women. Apart from that, every worshipper stands with shoulder to shoulder with his fellow worshipper, no matter what their status. And in the, the the third pillar of Islam is fasting. Now, fasting is really important because f- when we fast, we realize and we appreciate uh, what um, our fellow human beings are going through, especially those who are less fortunate to have um, you know, food every day. And the final pillar of Islam is the performance of Hajj. In uh, when when the when the truest melting pot of human humanity gathers, regardless of race, color, homeland, or social status, and the Holy Prophet peace be upon him lifted two hands and joined the fingers of one hand to the fingers of the other hand, even as the fingers of the two hands are equal, so are human beings equal to one another. No one has any right, nor any preference, to claim over another. We are all brothers. And this alone is enough to show that Islam is a religion of peace which severely opposes racism and all other forms of discrimination. Right. Thank you very, very much for that, Imam Usman Manan. And that brings us towards the end of today's program. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we were talking about the 75th anniversary of Windrush. We also talked about racism in sport, racism in football, racism in cricket, cricket. Uh, and we've had in-depth discussions on both of these topics with our guests. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to the show live, you can always go into SoundCloud and listen to the recording. I must thank our producers, Imam Rahman, researchers, Faiza Mansoor, Safa Noor, Shanza Mubarak, and Hassan Balid. My co-presenter, of course, is Imam Usman Manan. Excellent help from the tech room from Mr. Tahir and to all of you for joining us today to listen to this program. We will be back in a week's time. Until then, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. to the Voice of Islam Radio.
اللطيف Hazrat Yusuf on whom be peace mentions God's favors by virtue of his attribute of al-latif the benignant by recalling how God was his friend while his brothers conspired against him according to the lexicon latif is a kind of gracious being one who is benevolent to his creation as well as one who is aware of all subtle and incomprehensible matters al-latif is one who illuminates hearts who makes arrangements for physical and spiritual nourishment and who offers his friendship to his servants during times of tribulation the promised messiah on whom be peace said that sight intellect and consciousness cannot reach god it is impossible to try and see him he is al-latif he is unseen and illuminates the person he reaches to such an extent that the person speaks for him a divine honor mostly granted upon the prophets of god god is the knower of all subtleties and is all aware he is of those who seek him and raises prophets to be their guide to him his light is manifested through his prophets as they spread the light of unity of god all around them among all the prophets of god the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him disseminated this light the most for it was he who had the most perfect perception of god and it was he who was completely imbued in the colors of god in the current age because of his perfect and complete devotion and subservience to the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him god has granted this distinct honor to the promised messiah on whom be peace it is the attribute of al-latif that makes god the friend of his servants in all trials and tribulations just as the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him continuously prayed for the reformation of his ummah as well as his opponents as only al-latif can be the guidance and reformation al-latif is the supporter of the victim the voice of the oppressed al-latif is that companion whose loyalty never fails to astound it is he who fills hearts with his magnificent light then should we not be grateful for the mercy of al-latif Allah Akbar Allah Akbar Allah Akbar Ashhadu an la 